Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 16th episode of Cycles Podcast. I'm Jake Warner, Cycles CEO and founder, and uh, with us today is Tom Daly. Tom Daly is the CEO of Big Network, uh, and before Big Network, Tom was the co-founder at Dyan, uh, which was acquired by Oracle, and has also uh, previously held a senior leadership position at Fastly. Uh, Tom and I have known each other for uh, a couple years now, uh, and as of last year, Tom became an investor in Cycle. Tom, it's great to have you on our podcast today. Yeah, thank you, Jake. I appreciate the opportunity to meet your audience and speak to them. Excellent, excellent. So I've been looking forward to this podcast for a long time. Uh, you and I met, let's see, it was about a year and year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, um, as Cycle was going through uh, raising around, and and you and I were, were introduced uh, as you were helping to do helping to do due diligence. Uh, that's a tongue twister uh, on, on cycle. And, you know, since, since then, obviously, you know, you've, be, you've become an investor in our company. Uh, but the other thing that I've, I've really appreciated of having that connection is uh, the fact that you are also uh, very, 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 very technical. Um, and so uh, I guess first, as you know, we introduce you to our audience, um, I'd like to begin with uh, let's just uh, sharing some a little bit more background on you. So you you've been a founder, uh, you've been an investor. Uh, what's 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 what is everything to Tom Daly? Yeah. So if we go way back in time, uh, I started in the industry as a network engineer. In the, well, actually, I take that back. Started in the industry in dial-up technical support uh, for a dial-up ISP. And I don't know to what extent your audience knows what dial-up is, but, you know, go back to the late nineties, early two thousands. And, uh, it was the era of windows 3.1 trumpet, trumpet windsock. And on a really advanced user machine, we would be configuring dial-up networking on, uh, windows 95. So, you know, to this day, if you need someone to configure dial-up networking on windows 95 for you, like I'm your guy, I'll walk you through that. Right. It's just, Double click my computer, double click dial up networking, double click on add new connection, and we can walk through the rest of that from there. This still, <laughs> like, this still haunts me. Um, if you need access telephone numbers around New Hampshire, I probably still have some of those memorized for local, local towns as well. But yeah, so I cut my teeth um, in the era of dial up and uh, worked for an amazing mentor uh, who somehow trusted a kid in high school to do a lot for him. This gentleman's name is Gent Cav. Uh, he co-founded an ISP called G4 Communications. Uh, eventually, that uh, was merged into or acquired by First Light Fiber, who's a large operator here in, in the in the New England area, and they span out into upstate New York as well with their their network. So I had a tremendous opportunity to learn a lot. I got to learn, obviously, got to learn dial-up networking, got to learn customer service. Um, Gent trusted me to migrate the company's billing system from a bunch of uh, flat files and CGI scripts to a SQL-backed database system. I have no idea why he trusted a kid in high school to do this for him, but we did it. Um, and, you know, we brought a lot of automation along the way. So we were now, you know, provisioning users in Radius servers in an automated fashion. Uh, we could live test credit cards uh, using AuthorizeNet over the internet versus, you know, the old way we did it where on the first day of every month, you went over to one machine and uh, copied a bunch of flat files to a floppy disk, and you went over to the credit card terminal, put that floppy disk in, and read all the credit card numbers off and charged customers, and then got the result file and put it back on a floppy disk and brought it back to the, to the ISP server to uh, say that these cards had been successfully charged and these people can keep accessing the dial-up network. 
so you were running a legitimate so, sneaker you know, net. I'm for the credit card data. Yeah, I mean, you don't want that on on the ISP servers for sure. Yeah, it was it was yeah. air gap, right? Um, so uh, you know, then got really lucky and got to see a bunch of evolutions of the internet, right? So dial up to ISDN uh, for a whopping you know 128k connection um, to you know DSL to T1s, T3s, frame relay. Uh, all the way up to Ethernet services and learned a lot about uh, BGP routing uh, through networks, uh, started to understand how the DNS system worked, and generally just had a blast um, building this ISP. Got a lot of experience in the physical layer uh, as well. You know, learned that, uh, <laughs> learned that uh, you don't want to put a pallet of 12-volt, uh, you know, car batteries on an elevator. Uh, all at once, like it was like a 2,000 pound pallet of batteries. Uh, don't put. You may think you're on an industrial elevator, but if you haven't checked it for weight, um, and you exceed the weight of the elevator, when you when you drag the pallet jack into the elevator and the whole elevator goes down below subfloor, and it won't go up, and now you got to load these you know 150 pound batteries one by one off the elevator. Like you have a good learning experience in that day. Hopefully, so, you're on floor um, one. <laughs> uh, we were in the basement, fortunately. Okay. Yes, yes. But uh, then, then we got to learn, uh, you know, like carrying like four of these up on a hand truck at a time, uh, so that way we, we had no elevator problems. So, have dealt with the physical layer as well, and uh, I just just have a blast building networks. Um, along the way, connected up with the team at, at Dyn DNS back in the day, uh, Tim Wild, Chris Reinhardt, Jeremy Hitchcock, and. Um, you know, had the excitement of building a software company um, in the service provider space. Uh, you know, Dyn DNS was deployed to well over 300,000 subscribers across the world at, at base levels. Um, we, you know, we built the dynamic DNS functionality. We built custom DNS so that way you could bring your own domain name instead of using one of our domain names. Um, we bootstrapped that company and spent a bunch of time building add-on products to the DNS. So we had, you know, email delivery and email relay services, store and forward. Um, we could be your backup MX provider if you wanted. Uh, we built one of the very first, you know, network mon external synthetic network monitoring products uh, before the likes of, you know, uh, Thousand Eyes and Catchpoint ever existed in our industry. Um, and... We even got into hosting virtual machines for a period of time on, on a platform we called the Spring Server. And it was hard and, and it wasn't our DNS roots. And uh, we weren't really sure if this cloud thing was gonna take off because we didn't call it cloud. Um, but we, had v we were one of the very first VM providers out there. We're like, ah, eh, this really isn't a thing. We're gonna pass, let's go back to our DNS roots. So we, we missed offering cloud. Were you using like a raw like like libvirt setup or or was it yeah this more was like, like Linux like with servers, TVM or something? No, it was libvirt. Yeah, <laughs> it was wild. Um, Excellent. So we ultimately decided to double down on our roots. We had had some customers. Really interesting evolution. Um, uh, Britling Watches, the watch company, high end watch manufacturer, and uh, I think the other was Anadarko Petroleum. Both approached us and said, "Hey, we have a problem." Uh, we love your product, we love your service offering, but our CFOs don't trust you 
to provide our enterprise DNS for $24.95 a year. Because that's what we were charging at the time for all of your authoritative DNS with a web portal and API. So what they said is like, hey, do you think you could take like that $24.95 a year and turn it into like $24.95 a month for us? And like, just put it maybe on a different website, call it enterprise, because we really don't want to have to go to the competition. Like we don't like them very much. We don't think their features are as good. They charge way too much. So just like take $24.95 a year and make it $24.95 a month. And, um, and being good engineers, we said, yeah, no way, we're not doing that. We replatformed all of DynDNS into the Dynact managed DNS platform. Um, we built out 15 Anycast sites across the world, rolled out a whole new API, whole new data replication engine, and showed up to those customers and said, well, do you want this instead? It took us like a year and a half. And they were like, no, we just wanted you to change your pricing. And we're like, no, 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 we re-architected the entire platform for you. It's amazing. Here you go. Um, they all did they end up becoming customers? Came on as they became customers. They became early customers of the Dynec managed DNS platform. But Dynec grew. I mean, it was a phenomenal platform. We had the likes of uh, you know, Salesforce, Netflix, and Twitter um, on on the Dynec platform. Uh, so it served a significant it has served a significant amount of internet traffic. Uh, it was eventually acquired by Oracle in 2016. And to this day, I mean, it's almost 2023 and uh, Oracle is still running uh, elements of the Dynec platform for their DNS services. They just they just migrated the, the authoritative name servers away from AS33517. Long live AS33517. We're going to miss <laughs> you. Uh, and onto their own, their own network backbone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Dyn was super fun, you know, small company, 100, 100 150 people, um, amazing environment down in the mill yard of Manchester, which is just north of where I sit today. And, uh, but I wanted to do something a little bit bigger and eventually joined the team at Fastly. And Fastly uh, got into the world of content delivery, um, founded by a gentleman by the name of Arthur Bergman. He was uh, the chief technology officer at Wikia. So everyone knows Wikipedia, you know, it's the public uh, wiki site, the public encyclopedia, but there's actually a for-profit side to that business and that's called Wikia and it's a wiki hosting website. So anyone that wants a wiki for any reason can go get a hosted wiki um, by, by at the time, Arthur and his team. This has since evolved into the site called Fandom. And Arthur had a challenge, um, huge challenge in front of him. So, you know, if you think about what a wiki is, you know, it's it's highly cacheable content. Like it's, you know, amazing to get onto a CDN, a content delivery network, because the content doesn't change very often. Yeah. So you can put that on, you know, somebody's caching network all over the world. The the problem is that when it does need to change, you need to push that con- that new content into the cache as quickly as possible. And there's really two ways, even, even in 2022, to do that, to signal that to a CDN. Um, as the origin. So the first option is you set a time to live on your content, uh, which is just a, an HTTP header that you respond back with, with say, hey, please cache this for 60 seconds. Please cache this for an hour. Please cache this for a day. Uh, or many CDNs support a, uh, a purge verb in HTTP. And uh, you can send that purge verb out as the origin and it will refresh the cache. The, the challenge with this is, you know, the lower you drop the TTL, the more load you have on your origin, right? The higher you uh, raise this TTL, 
the less often the CDN is going to come check in for uh, fresh content. And at the time, this was all, all the way back in 2012, um, issuing the, pur the, the purge verb on the CDNs that were out there was like, you know, the fastest network was like a 15 minute global purge and the average was like a day. And Arthur just said, this isn't good enough and designed a new CDN with a uh, sub-second purging system, which, you know, fixed his problems at Fastly and uh, opened up the opportunity for someone like me to join to help build a very, very large uh, global infrastructure. So over six years, we built 75 global points of presence and over 100 terabits of connected edge capacity uh, to that network. So that was a blast. Um, you know, few super, few Super Bowls. Um, you know, Prince passing on, and uh, and having a very major role in uh, a variety of web assets for the finale of Game of Thrones. Probably my most favorite uh, evening in watching. You know, the internet do its thing. Uh, so you know, it was it was an absolute blast. And uh, in two thousand uh, in twenty twenty, hung up my hat there. Uh, decided to uh, do a couple uh, years tour of angel investments, and that's where I got to meet you. And, I, 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 and I'm, I'm glad we did meet. And it is actually really interesting as you're, you're telling these stories. Like, um, I remember, oh, I don't, I don't know the year, but it was, it was when I finally started getting interested in networking and stuff. And so this is, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess 2005, uh, maybe 2006. I don't don't quote me on that. Um, but as I started, uh, you know, it was it was the first time I had actually uh, you know bought a Linksys router and started playing with it and everything. And I remember um, I had set up some sort of oh I don't know it must have been like an FTP server at home or something, right? Like something that I could access. You know, I was back in let's see 2006. I would have been in in uh, in high school. Um, and so maybe, maybe, maybe it was, maybe it was, maybe it was a little bit later than that. Either way, year doesn't matter, but I remember setting up an FTP server, uh, at home that I wanted to be able to access from anywhere. And back at that time, I was like, Oh, I, I have a public IP at home. I should be able to use this. And then, you know, you know, he heading to, to school and, you know, trying to access that public IP. And it's like, why isn't this working? I, I know when I left my house this morning, that was my IP. And so I, so it, it's, it's so interesting to hear you talk about dying from, you know, the side of building it where, you know, I just, me being in high school, realizing the need for dynamic DNS back then. And I remember going into my, my Linksys router and choosing the dying option and setting up, uh, you know, uh, a dynamic host name that I, I rather just, I guess a domain, uh, that would always just constantly obviously be updated to, to that IP and finally being able to, to set up port forwarding and getting into my FTP server. But it's just so interesting hearing, you know, the both sides of that is like, that was like me first starting to explore that side of networking and the problems that nowadays, you know, are things that, you know, so many people are familiar with and encounter, but, uh, the, the early problems that we had to solve for like what happens when you have NAT in front of everything and, and, and rotating IPs <laughs> right. and all these things. So it's really interesting to, to, to hear about that. Um, and then on, 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 on that same note, as you're, as you're talking about Fastly and, and this way of, of, uh, pushing data to, 
uh, to the CDNs. I'm almost so this is me, this is me going to be nerding out a little bit, um, but I'm almost surprised that and maybe maybe someone's doing this nowadays. I don't know, but I'm surprised. It would surprise me if no one took like as you're talking about purging and pushing up new files, if there was no like rsync type method, right? Where you're just constantly looking for file changes. Like you're running like an agent or something on on some origin server, right? And just constantly pushing out those updates um, versus doing this purge thing. Cause I mean, I think, I guess me speaking or thinking out loud here is like back when bandwidth was a lot harder to come by, it made sense to have, you know, these, these kind of cache events for an hour later or things like that. But nowadays when, you know, you can just have these constant syncs between everything, um, I wonder if anyone actually is doing an R-Sync. Is that something that you guys ever thought of? So I know that there's some uh, content provider, content delivery networks out there that actually do that. Um, you know, there's kind of really sort of two models to CDN architecture in the pure content world. So uh, there's push CDNs, right? And then there's more like your traditional pull through. Yeah. So, you know, a Fastly... Um, an Akamai are more of the traditional pull through CDN. So a request comes in, it hits a cache. If it's in the cache, great, it's served as a hit. Uh, if it's not in the cache, uh, it might be directed to a parent tier of the network somewhere, or it's going to be routed back to origin to get fulfilled, right? So that's your traditional like uh, push uh, uh, pull model CDNs. There are, some, there are some push model CDNs out there uh, like Cashfly for example, which are really great for uh, download traffic, for example, and they have an rsync model. So uh, what, what they actually do is you sync your objects to a storage ingestion point on their network, and then they do replication, and they actually store every file, every object across their, their global network. Um, works for smaller object footprints, uh, but you know if you think of something like a streaming music service, they can easily have libraries in, you know, the, the tens of petabytes, uh, the hundreds of petabytes for all of their music library. Chances are, you know, maybe 1% of that working set or 1% of that library is hot and that's your working set. So why replicate 100 petabytes of data around the world, right? You really need maybe that one petabyte that's hot and you want that distributed around. Yeah, it, it, it makes sense. So it's it's um, definitely been thought of. It's just it's just every you know every use case has its nuances. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but the, but the reason I started thinking about it is we have some we have some companies on Cycle that you know it's like you know Cycle's really good at managing the orchestration of the underlying containers and things like that. But a lot of people are uh, that are adopting Cycle are are working with a model where you know I'm, I'm sure you're familiar familiar with like headless CMSs and things, right? Where where you want the data to be fully decoupled from the application whatsoever, right? And so for a long time, people were doing this with like NFS and things like that. But in but as, as object storage has become more and more relevant, we have a number of companies. Uh, this is actually incredibly relevant because we had a, com uh, a customer working on this yesterday where uh, they're taking an old, uh, this is like a legacy application that they're migrating. But instead of just writing to a local disk or writing to an NFS mount, uh, they're just treating everything as object storage in the cloud. And just, you know, when a file upload comes in, it's almost just a pass through through the front end to, uh, I mean, not necessarily a CDN, but an object store. But the, the whole idea being there that um, that I wonder how many people are uh, 
or you know, are syncing those types of things and just having that native integration, which I mean, I guess to the point that you already made, if you're if you're having that like source of truth be somewhere, you know, within the CDN and they're just replicating it on their own, uh solves a lot of those problems, uh, while still sing, you know, kind of giving a, a single endpoint for, for users to to accomplish that. So uh, kind of really interesting how how all those different things happen. So, uh, kind of a nerdy question. Uh, we had we had uh, we had Backblaze um, on the podcast uh, a few months ago, and I asked a question along the lines that was, um, "How much how much data are you ingressing?" Uh, on you know on a, on an hourly basis or something. And I know you know you, you haven't been in Fastly for what two or three years now. Yeah, about two years now, right? Yeah, about right. two years. Uh, so back when, so as you talk about the Super Bowl and things, uh, like what, what, you know, everyone has the different definition of scale. What was Fastly's type of scale? If you can remember, I know, you know, it's uh, probably one of those things that is like kind of a, a toss away, you know, point, but uh, curious what, how much, as you talk about the Super Bowl and these things, how much like scale of data were you actually working with? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know the number. I won't share the number because that's proprietary to Fastly. Okay. But I can give you some sense of things because one thing that is very neat about Fastly is they're an extremely transparent company. So as you were asking the question, what I did is I went to fastly.com slash network dash map. Okay. And first of all, they published their overall network capacity uh, as of September 30th, 2022. That's 233 terabits per second of connected capacity. So that's almost like a quarter petabit per second, right? Um, and then if you scroll down on that web page, um, they actually publish in real time, like the aggregate uh, throughput on their network. So, uh, you know, you can see this counter, it's bouncing around between like 43 and a half terabits per second and performing just a shade under 24 million requests per second. Uh, and, you know, I won't go into the specifics, but what we learn over time is that, you know, the peak over time becomes the average as you grow your customer base. So uh, these numbers are familiar to me, is what I'll say. And and that is and, and that's wild. And like, so I didn't expect this network map to exist. That's why I had to kind of choose a point in time in the past. But that's actually fun. that's that's wild to be able to have that type of information of forty four and uh, you know forty three point seven terabits per second right now is wild, wild. Yeah. But you know, as, as as we talk about you know ne- all this network things, you know, obviously you know your entire career has been focused on networks, whether it's a software perspective or a hardware perspective. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I guess let's let's dive into what you're working on now. Uh, so you're working on big network. What is big network? Yeah, so big network is exciting. Um, I recently joined the team over there. So big network has a vision to connect clouds to anything and anywhere. Um, so, you know, we used to have these network closets all over the place and we had these corporate data centers and we had these little data rooms, right? And eventually, you know, things moved into co-location sites, right? Like that's what we put Fastly into. Fastly was in Equinix and digital realty and, you know, the telexes of the world all over the place. Um, and you know, that was pretty standard. A lot of companies understood how that worked. Um, and then came along cloud. And we have spent the last decade moving most of our workloads and assets into various clouds. And depending upon who you ask, uh, depending upon the the industry analyst that you ask, people believe that something like only 30% of all workloads have made made their way to the cloud so far. 
and then I've heard other, you know, uh, quotes that like something like upwards of 60% of all workloads have made their way to a cloud provider. So nonetheless, like there's a vast amount of space in this industry um, for more things to migrate out of the corporate data center, out of the, the traditional closet um, and, and into the cloud. At the same time, you know, we have seen uh, this movement from, you know, the cloud providers, the central cloud providers, if you will, out to the edge, right? We have latency sensitive applications, um, high speed applications, applications that are, you know, increasingly running on private networks, you know, such as like private 5G LTE deployments uh, that are out there in the world now. And, um, you know, what was in these nice sort of central clouds and had local convenient networking uh, is now moving out to the edge. At the same time, you know, there's still a bunch of devices out in the premise that need to get connected to the cloud. And I'll, I'll share one little story about big network, about connecting anything, to, or the cloud to anything was, and it sort of like got me really intrigued by the company and, and sort of broke 20 years of my experience. And it was actually Elon Musk's fault and Starlink. So I'm a geek. I love to try new things out. And so I got a Starlink dish. And I was so excited when I got the Starlink dish. So I set it up, you know, and uh, I always have a bunch of Linux servers sitting in the basement wherever I am because, you know, I like to be able to telnet and trace route and uh, ping from all over the world. And I like to be able to do it for my own infrastructure. Did I say telnet? I meant SSH. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so, so I get the Starlink dish and it does a, it, it's got a NAT box on it. And you know, I start running some trace routes and checking what my WAN IP is and whoa, like I'm landing on a global WAN IP um, inside some Google infrastructure. Like this is weird. And start digging around and looking at whose IP address space this is. And it's like, wow, Starlink just actually does not have a lot of IPv4 address space based upon the, a number of their subscribers. Start digging and digging and digging. And oh my gosh, my WAN IP is out of this 100.64 slash 12 block, which if you look that up in the RFCs, is uh, IPv4 space reserved for carrier grade NAT, subscribers behind carrier grade NAT. And so I'm like, like my entire model is broken because I'm behind this carrier grade NAT uh, with my home internet connection. So no dynamic DNS is gonna work because it's not my IP, even if it did, you know, port forwarding. I, I'm not in control of port forwarding at the carrier grade NAT box. Uh, so forget about even moving on to the next step. I sort of had to change the entire model. So, you know, Googling around late at night and um, checking out what the latest technologies are. And it's like, you know, go back to the, the normal toolbox of like, all right, well, where out on the internet do I want to establish some IPsec tunnels? Or where am I going to host an open VPN server? Like, I don't want to do that. I, you know, and what ports, you know, I can't open ports, so that's not even an, an option for me. And I end up stumbling on big network and I tried it and it is phenomenal. It's an amazing networking technology. So, you know, think of if Napster was a music sharing app built on a peer to peer network, then big is an ethernet switch that's built on top of a peer to peer network. And so big provides these peer to peer discovery services from our hardware clients and our software clients. So that way, no matter kind of where you're sitting in the network, deep behind NAT, carrier grade NAT, you can punch through and make uh, ether, make ethernet 
over layer two, over peer-to-peer -peer work. So we think that uh, there's, a, there's a missed opportunity in cloud networking, and we're going to go seize that opportunity. And it's the space in between the cloud providers themselves, where there's a lot of good players there, but between the cloud providers themselves and reaching back out into the traditional on-premise infrastructure. And that can be any number of you know, IoT sensors, building automation systems, access control systems, security systems, connecting users behind their laptops in the office to the cloud directly, and doing it without legacy technologies like IPsec. And I think for any of the network engineers, you know, listening in on the podcast, like nobody wants to configure IPsec. It is so annoying, and and we are just trying to make it really, really easy for people. So with, uh, as, as you talked about configuring IP, uh, IPsec and everything, um, do you remember uh, ever having to configure, uh, I believe it was called Strong, uh, Strong Swan or Swan, Strong, Strong Swan? It was, it was, it was IP, uh, it, was, sorry, it was key rotation on top of IPsec. Uh, I remember having to configure that one time. And to your point, uh, huge, huge, huge headache. But um, so with, with, with big network, uh, there's a software component to it and a hardware component to it. Right. So a couple different pieces. Uh, the software component, the biggest software component is our control plane. We offer our service, you know, orchestrated from the cloud. So we provide a portal and a public API to our client base, and you can configure all these properties of layer two networks via portal or via API. So you can decide who's going to be on the network, um, uh, both from devices and users. You can control different, you know, things like uh, DHCP pools, you can configure static routing, you can do some recursive DNS mani manipulation, variety of options that you can control. Um, then, you know, once you've sort of instantiated what we call a cloud network, and just think of that as like an internet scale layer two domain, once you've instantiated that cloud network, now you can start attaching things to it. And there's a number of things that you can attach. Uh, we have client softwares for Windows, Mac, Linux, iOS, and Android. And so those will join cloud networks at layer three. And so you can build private networks, say, from your laptop to your iPhone, wherever they are in the world. Uh, you could do that for your distributed team. Uh, so if you wanted to bring back, maybe you were running a team of software engineers. When we're all sitting in an office, we were on a local LAN. It was pretty cool. Like the way, you know, I would develop with my partners at Dyn would be like, hey, I'm running an HTTP server at, you know, 10.10.10.10. Like, please come demo what I've been working on. Like, in the work from home world, that doesn't work anymore. And there's a whole bunch of like funny things that we're doing to our networks to make that happen. I mean, there's a there's a bunch of people innovating in this space with uh, SSH tunnels and, or re I should say reverse SSH tunnels, um, you know, various takes on other uh, 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 tunneling technologies, just trying to make this easy. And you can do that with big today. Um, one of the places that we think sets us apart is we are brave enough to delve into the world of hardware. Um, and most folks for the past, you know, five, 10 years of the world have stayed away from hardware um, because hardware is hard. So uh, we actually make a couple different devices that bridge normal ethernet networks onto cloud networks. Uh, one of them we call Edge Lite. So I have a raw one here. It doesn't have our sticker on it yet, but it's a beautiful uh, ARM-based processor with a built-in heatsink, so this is one solid piece of aluminum, um, two Ethernet ports, one LAN, one WAN, and you can use this in remote access applications uh, all over the place. Uh, it's powered off of USB-C, so very low power foot footprint, 
bring in any number of power supplies that you want, fully cloud managed and um, bridges, you know, traditional ethernet networks uh, to cloud networks. This can be used for remote access in the data center. So if you wanted to set up an out-of-band network, um, you would put, you know, the devices that you want to have remote control over off the LAN segment. Uh, or if you wanted to use this as an access gateway to the cloud, you could put our software up in a cloud provider. Uh, and, you know, maybe you might be plugging something like a voice over IP telephone into the LAN port and securely tunneling up to the cloud, uh, to your cloud PBX. You might put video surveillance cameras. You might put an access control system behind here. There's just a number of options. And then uh, for folks who want something a little bit bigger, um, we also have our larger multi-port model. So this is uh, six gig ports and two combo one uh, 10 gig ports available on the platform. Uh, we are also very, very close to reaching a beta period with uh, some VM packaged gateways. So if you'd like to run uh, uh, our cloud gateways, cloud network gateways on top of uh, KVM or something like uh, uh, VMware ZSXi, uh, that is up and coming functionality that we're going to be releasing. But it's this, this, this point of from the cloud to the edge, let's make connectivity simple at, at every layer. And, and, you know, obviously as the, the, the founder of Cycle, um, uh, I get really excited about these types of things because, uh, I mean, everything that you're doing is just so applicable to a lot of the people that uh, are using Cycle these days. And especially so, um, you know, uh, as you know, um, and I'm guessing most people listening to the podcast, we launched our uh, infrastructure abstraction layer, our IAL um, about a month and a half ago now, and so the IEL allows people to connect Cycle to. I mean, we have we've always we've always had our native integrations with AWS, Vulture, Equinix Metal, etc. But with the IEL now, uh, uh, companies can come to Cycle and connect infrastructure wherever it is. Um, in fact, we actually have a couple of proof of concepts running right now um, with. Uh, some companies, unfortunately, we can't dive into the names of them on, 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 on the podcast, but we have some proof of concepts running uh, where companies now are running cycle in their own data centers. And so it's, you know, just being the, the, the excitement of being able to uh, reach a point someday where we can throw, uh, you know, big networks devices uh, in front or uh, I guess in front or behind of the, uh, those servers um, and then also link those up to um, maybe you know, an AWS account or something and, and have that as a that seamless network as you're describing, there's just so much power there and there's so many issues that that can help mitigate um, because, you know, as you're talking about out of band servers, right? Like Cycle, uh, as we, as, as Cycle starts up, uh, it always tries to uh, find an out of band network that it can use to build all these connections, right? And if someone's running something on, on premises and something, and they're also running something on AWS at the same time, like, you know, like unless you're setting up cross connects and all these other things, that's a whole complex process. And so the exciting thing is with big network, that, that's, a, that's a problem that you're making very, very, very easy to solve. And so with big network and this, this, this flat network that it helps produce, um, uh, does it offer encryption as part of that? It does. Yeah. So we have a, a key distribution system, pri private public key distribution system. It's all based on AES 256 bit encryption. It forms a full mesh of tunnels automatically. You don't have to go form that full mesh of tunnels uh, like you do with IPsec, uh, which ends up getting into like the tunnel scaling problem, right? So you end up getting this non-geometric uh, or more than geometric uh, sequence scaling scheme that you have to get into when you're manually configuring the tunnels yourself. And yeah, everything is secured. Um, 
AES-256. Excellent, excellent. And so, um, in terms of uh, is so with 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 the devices and software that you have, is that something that the public can now try out? Do you have a beta period open? Uh, like, if if someone's listening sure. to the podcast and they want to try it out, how could they? Yeah, anyone can go to our website, which is just bignetwork.com. Uh, there is a sign up button on the top right, and you can get a free trial for your devices. Um, meaning your endpoints, so your Mac, Windows, Linux, iOS, Android box. We do ask folks for a credit card number uh, up front. Uh, if you sign up for our core plan, we won't charge your credit card, um, but we like to have the credit card on file as an uh, anti-abuse uh, mechanism uh, just to weed out some fraudulent signups. And then uh, we also have a you know Friends of Big Network uh, early access program to Edge Lite. And so if you are interested in trying out the hardware box, uh, shoot us a tweet on Twitter, get Big Network, uh, send us a message on LinkedIn, or shoot an email to sales at bignetwork.com. And uh, if you're a network engineer, software developer, have a networking background, we will happily send you a edge light and trial credits for a year uh, to get a sense of, of the hardware as well. I think you have one, Jake, right? I do. I do have one. And I remember when we were going through the early days of setting it up and you're like, what, well, you want to see something neat? And from my phone, I pulled up the, uh, I, I, from my phone over the L2 network that it, sorry, uh, yeah, over the, yeah, the L2 network that it created, um, uh, I was able to, um, from the, sorry, from, from my phone after disabling Wi-Fi. But still having the application running, I was able to access my link, uh, my my router's uh, control interface. Uh, it was it was pretty neat knowing that I could, if I as ever so, needed, as to, though you were on the local LAN, right? Yep. Exactly, and and being yep. able to do that from anywhere uh, is is really neat. Because um, who knows, like when is when is the Nest camera going to not connect anymore, and I need to reconnect it, or you know, who knows? Um, and it's just really nice to be able to have that functionality, or that flexibility of being able to do that anywhere. Um, and, what's, what's interesting in this it, for for someone at home, a geek like us, right? I mean, we <clears throat> we're learning new use cases every day, and one of the most interesting ones that we just came across, uh, a friend of ours brought this to us. You know, there's a lot of devices that you know have some sort of cloud for user control, right? Like, you know, your Nest thermostat uses Google Cloud and exposes a beautiful app so you can control your thermostat. But there's some out there that we found, and, and one of the most interesting ones is the Roku uh, TV streamer. So it is cloud managed, it can be controlled over the cloud, but there's one critical button that you can't press remotely and you have to be on your local network to do it, um, which is get to enable guest mode. And so if you're running an Airbnb, for example, this was my friend's use case, uh, he's running an Airbnb. If he forgets to uh, enable guest mode before he leaves, the only thing he can do is drive back to the place, get on the local Wi-Fi network and enable guest mode for his Roku. And we were like, no, 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 no. Like, let, let's show you big network. Let's show you how you get, you know, tunneled L2 access in with absolutely no changes to your firewall, no dynamic DNS, like no port forwarding. It's super, super easy. And like just turned on Roku's guest mode like that remotely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's, there's so many different things that you could do with it, even from, 
even from like if I had a, a file server that I was running locally and I was like, hey, instead of exposing this to the internet in a traditional sense, because I might need to access it from somewhere else, just having that flat ne that flat network that just makes that seamless is just, there's so many opportunities there. And then again, from a cycle perspective, I'm just sitting here, I'm like, my mind's already racing. Like, you know, what are the other things that we can, we can help solve problems with, especially with the IAL now being live. Um, we've had more and more companies um, coming to us uh, recently saying, hey, you know, we have this on-premises infrastructure. We want to gain the capabilities of a traditional cloud, but we still want to own this infrastructure. Actually, that's a question I want to pose to you. Um, so with Cycle, we actually have more bare metal running on the platform today than virtual machines. And we're seeing more and more companies switch back to bare metal, not necessarily throwing it in their closet, but switching back to bare metal. Is that something that you've been seeing in the industry as well? I mean, I've been I've been seeing it and living it, um, right? I mean, you know, you you take an infrastructure like Dyn, or you take an infrastructure like Fastly, and even to a certain extent, an infrastructure like Big. Uh, what we're operating on the background, and there are a whole bunch of elements of our system and stack that make a ton of sense. Put it in a cloud provider, like just do it. Don't try to run it yourself. But you know, if you think about a hundred terabit per second caching CDN network. Um, from an economic standpoint, that does not make sense to put in any cloud provider. I mean, you will just, you'll just get eaten alive on bandwidth egress charges. Um, and when you're running these large global infrastructures, you want to be in control of things like your network and your transit relationships and your peering interconnection relationships and what you might be doing with something like a, a private backbone. And you give up some of that control of the network when you're in a cloud provider. So, you know, I think that, you know, everything sort of comes around, right, in our industry. It was mainframes and then it was client server. And if you think of the cloud, it's kind of mainframey again. I mean, I think we've seen a bunch of stuff move to the cloud and there's a bunch of workloads that are gonna stay there because they just make sense to be up in a cloud provider. But there's going to be workloads that come back out, right? And it's those workloads that are specific and niche. They have specific hardware requirements. They have specific topology or network requirements. And, you know, it's my belief that the cloud providers from a network standpoint are never going to play nicely with one another because that's their moat. And so, or a lot of their moat is the network. And so let's, figure out how to um, how to abstract that moat and make it easy to get over, you know, give, give everybody a drawbridge over the moat, no matter where they're trying to place their infrastructure. Um, yeah. And so I think that, you know, hybrid cloud is up and coming and, and it's going to be here to stay for a long time. And it's probably it's probably for a good while the right way to do everything. And, and I fully agree. Like I think I mentioned to you before, but more than 60% of Cycle's customers are uh, using multi-cloud or hybrid cloud today in some sense, right? And it's really interesting because, uh, you know, you, you hit on the, the points about performance, but the other thing that we're seeing is, is uh, at least with platforms like Cycle, is the, is the increased density on these bare metal servers, right? Like if you go over to AWS and you say, hey, I need a server with you know, 20 gigabytes of RAM or whatever, um, you might get the server that has 20 gigabytes of RAM, but you might get like five vCPUs in it, right? So you're getting maybe 1.15 or 125, you know, 
physical cores and you're paying $500, $600 a month for it, where there's some of these infrastructure as a service providers now that are offering bare metal where, I mean, take Vulture, for example. With Vulture, they have a server right now that has 32 gigs of RAM. I believe it's eight physical cores for $122 a month, right? And I mean, you go over to AWS and I mean, for those types of resources in a VM, you're going to pay 10x the price. And so it's one of those things that I think people have been afraid of bare metal after adapting to the cloud because they're so used to like, ooh, I can scale up and scale down and everything. But um, you know, as, as time goes on, we're seeing more and more companies starting to uh, you know, adopt a lot of this bare metal, even if it's in an infrastructure service-like provider, um, just because there's... Again, if you can get that increased density, you can get that performance, as you mentioned. Um, there's just so many wins that you can get there that it's like, I don't know. Um, I, a few years ago, Cycle as a company, we were running most of our stuff on VMs in a traditional cloud. But now today, we run more in bare metal, still in you know, these cloud providers, or maybe not maybe cloud provider is the wrong term, uh, but these infrastructure as a service providers, uh, we're running more bare metal in them than we are VMs now. Um, and then our customers are, 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 are the same. So it's just really interesting seeing that that uh, that uh, that progression had happened. And one of the things that you and I have talked about previously, and uh, I've, I've, I think I mentioned it on a podcast before, um, but we always see that pendulum, right? Where you're always switching between simplicity and customizability. And it always, it's almost about every seven years, it's flipping back and forth, right? And like even right now within the within the container orchestration space, right? You have, you know, for the last, you know, five, six years, you've had all these people switching over to Kubernetes because they want that customizability. But through a lot of the conversations we're having, we're seeing that pendulum starting to swing back the other way towards simplicity. People are saying, I don't need to be able to customize a thousand different things. I just need to be able to customize these things. And I think that uh, kind of aligning that with bare metal or, or, or even with what you're building with big network, it's like, like, yes, I want that customizability, but more important is I want that simplicity. I want to be able to just plug in these devices and go. And it's just one of these things that it's just really interesting to, to see happen within the, the industry. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, bare metal for a period of time as cloud was adopting. Like bare metal meant the traditional on-premise data center or the traditional co-location site. And it was a dirty word, right? Like we didn't have DevOps. We didn't have SRE. We had developers and sysadmins, right? And developers wanted to induce change into the, into the system and sysadmins wanted to prevent change in the system because, you know, they didn't want uh, things breaking. And, you know, here comes the cloud, which, you know, empowers developers to like swipe a credit card and, get an infrastructure that they're in complete control of without, you know, all the, I mean, the places we started where it was like, you want a server, like, you know, get out a floppy disk or get out the CD-ROM or get out a USB drive. Like you're walking downstairs into the cold, you know, uh, air conditioned data hall, right? And, you know, there's this whole generation of developers that um, for better or for worse, like the start of a server for them is some API command or some CLI tool. Like I was... Uh, I've, uh, I am not a developer, let's be clear, but you know, like for many of my years, my starting point for a new server was something like knife EC2 create, right? That's how I got a server for a period of time. And that became so de facto, so understood that we were going to get our infrastructure via API and command line that, you know, I think the concept, and you just can't really do that with bare metal, right? You can't. But we've had so many inf infrastructure as a service providers or bare metal as a service providers come up and provide that level of abstraction 
to the actual hardware now where, where bare metal is very much real, capable, uh, extremely customizable and powerful. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, it's, 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 I, it's, it's nice that you're seeing that in the industry or not just seeing it, but living it as well. Um, because for, for a while now we've been seeing that. And it's one of those things where uh, when I bring that up to people, a lot, there's a lot of people that are like, really? Like, you're not just going to throw everything at EC2 instances. And I'm like, no, like there's a better and more efficient way of doing these things. So it is interesting that you're, you're encountering that as well. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's a time, I think there's a time and a place for everything. If you're, you know, if you're going to build, um, uh, some, you know, social app, right. Like, and you're starting out as a company, you got your first, you know, three to $5 million of series seed funding, and you're going to put that to work and build your app. Like, I think you're crazy not to go build it inside one of the cloud providers, right? Because it just gives you so much foundational infrastructure so fast. The, the problem comes when you're doing massive levels of scaling inside the cloud and you can't see, well, you can see, but you can't control the inefficiencies that end up existing. And that's where, you know, adopting or at least having a plan and architecture that allows a hybridized approach early on is important. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree. And, and that's actually one of the, that's one of the stories that we've been telling to a lot of these companies, even in the early days is, Hey, you know, if you adopt a platform like cycle, you know, <clears throat> we make it so easy to build these hybrid environments. That even if you are going to start with VMs, we're going to make that path easy to bare metal. Should you ever need it? Right. Um, and so, uh, so again, being able to eventually someday pair that with big, with, with, with big network, uh, is something that, that gets me really excited. But uh, as, we, as we get closer to wrapping up the podcast today, um, as I mentioned uh, in, in the introduction, um, that you know you're you're an angel investor, uh, you're, you're an investor in Cycle. Um, but uh, just regardless of the Cycle component, there, uh, curious of uh, sharing your perspective on uh, you know startup investing and things like that with our audience. We have a lot of startup founders uh, that uh, are customers of Cycle that listen to those podcasts, etc. Um, and I think they'd be really interested in, in your thoughts on. On uh, what type of companies do you look for? Uh, what makes a company good to you? Um, things like that. Yeah, I'd be happy to share. So, you know, I, I believe in a strong entrepreneurial ecosystem. Uh, I think entrepreneurs and small businesses are, the data says they're the foundation of our country in many ways. Um, but yeah, so in terms of what I'm looking at, you know, what I look for and, and uh, the, the theory behind investments, you know, first of all, it needs to be in an area I know something about. Right. So, uh, you know, I know Internet infrastructure. I know some things about software. Um, you know, I work at various levels of the Internet infrastructure stack. So I always invest in areas that I have, you know, a healthy level of familiarity with. So I'm not going to get involved, say, with, you know, as an example, a biotech startup. It's just that's that's not my jam. Uh, that's actually my wife's jam. Uh, she understands that way better than I do. So I, I stay away from areas that I don't have some pre-existing knowledge of. Uh, but from there, you know, then I'm looking at uh, a couple different things. Uh, you know, I'm looking at how does it lever into my background? How does it lever into the founder's background? You know, have they lived the problem that they're trying to solve in some way? So, you know, a lot of people talk about product market fit. There's this pre-stage to that, which I would call founder market fit. And I think that industry or that term has been making its way around the, the venture capital community. You are looking for founders who deeply understand, empathize, sympathize, and can solve a problem. 
um, that maybe they've lived themselves or, or for folks that they have been in service to over the years um, have had to solve the problem for in the past. Some of my you know, favorite uh, founder profiles are folks who are in the professional services world and you know, they have become an expert in their field, uh, whether it be, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, Will Mitchell is the founder and CEO of a startup called Vetro FiberMap. He is a GIS expert that uh, specialized in providing GIS consultancy for people building fiber to the home networks. And it turns out when you're building fiber to the home, you need a lot of GIS systems to support that, to figure out where you should deploy, uh, how you should uh, structure your uh, fiber cable, whether it's underground or on a pole, and then use a lot of GIS data to um, operate your network. You know, when there's a fiber cut, there's these things called OTDRs, optical time domain reflectometers, that will help you locate in distance where a fiber break is, right? Well, if you're standing at, you know, the data center head end and it says, hey, the fiber break is 30 kilometers out, you know, if you don't have good GIS data, guess what you do? You jump in a truck and you start driving along until you find like the car into the telephone pole, sadly. And, you know, when, when unfortunately it's a drunk hunter that has decided to take shots with their rifle at your fiber cable because it's fun, it's pretty hard to see that from a vehicle. So if you have good GIS data, you can look that up and say, hey, based upon the way that the fiber is spinning and the slack loops that are in the aerial plant, we know that this is going to be between, you know, pole 111 and pole 112. Let's go find the, find the break in the fiber. So Will has an amazing background in GIS consulting. And he decided like, hey, I, I seem to be doing the same thing for my clients over and over and over again. I should just make that into some software. And that's essentially how a company like Vetro FiberMap was born. And I love seeing, you know, uh, companies that do those sorts of things. And I love investing in founders. Uh, that have those areas, th those expertise because they've lived the problem. They deeply understand all the nuances. And in some ways, like the product roadmap is just in their head. Uh, they just can see where they want to go on a multi-year horizon in a very, very natural fashion. And um, so that makes a complete sense. Uh, uh, appreciate you sharing that. Um, but uh, I have one final question. So with... Um you know, the companies that you're invested in, um, you're invested. So you, you shared a story with me a few months ago and, uh, um, you shared a story with me about, um, you were getting ready to, you were, or, or not, sorry, one of the startups that you had invested in was getting ready to, uh, it was either dig a tunnel or bury some sort of line underneath a river. Uh, can, can you, can you dive into that? Yeah, uh, happily. So, uh, a few years ago now, I got involved with a gentleman by the name of Josh Snowhorn. He is now the he is the founder and CEO of a company called Quantum Loophole. Uh, Quantum Loophole seeks to build out the largest scale environmentally friendly data center campuses all over the world. And our first project is happening in Frederick County, Maryland. Uh, Frederick County, Maryland is about 30 miles north of Ashburn, Virginia. Um, for the geeks on the call, everyone knows that Ashburn is effectively like the center of the North American internet. There's tons of submarine cables that come in and out of Ashburn. All of the major cloud providers there. Um, 
not to pick on our friends at AWS, but anytime there's a US East One event, that is all happening inside Ashburn. And uh, the challenge in Ashburn is Ashburn is full. Um, you know, when I was going down to Ashburn in the early 2000s, like it was farmland and now it's all data centers. So they're running out of land. And uh, we've also heard from the local utility provider, Dominion Energy, they really have very limited capacity to supply additional power to the Ashburn market until 2025. So the hyperscale data center community is very challenged in Ashburn right now. And so Josh uh, and his team at Quantum had the foresight of this coming and decided that they were going to start building some of the world's largest data center campuses. So we identified a parcel, the team identified a parcel of 2,200 acres of land in Frederick County, Maryland, with a significant amount of gigawatt scale power available. And in such a way that, you know, reduces the need for uh, non-environmentally friendly power sources, i.e. Uh, diesel generators. The problem in Frederick was that there just isn't that much fiber there. Um, you know, Ashburn is 30, 30 miles away, and we just did not see a way to uh, get the traditional means for connect, middle mile connectivity uh, up into Frederick. So the good news is the, the team at Quantum is very diverse, and not only do they understand dirt and power and water and sewer and buildings and powered shells, but they also understand fiber. And so Josh and his team set out to build one of the world's largest middle mile networks, um, 235,000 strands of fiber uh, from Loudoun County, Virginia, up to Frederick County, Maryland, but with one big problem. And the big problem is, is that all the interstate bridges uh, across the Potomac River that you would normally uh, hang fiber from are completely full. So the Department of Transportation in Virginia, Department of Transportation in Maryland say, nope, no more attach attachments for fiber infrastructure to our bridges. There is too much weight. Uh, and in recent history, there hasn't been a si significant fiber crossing uh, across the Potomac for uh, infrastructure in many years. So we couldn't go over it, so we decided to go under it. And you can go check out our LinkedIn page. Uh, our drilling machines are at hard at work. Uh, these are directional drilling machines that are drilling uh, a 12-inch borehole uh, under the river, about 2,000 feet long, popping up to the other side. So it's this, the machine where you can control how it uh, goes under the river. And once we get that 12-inch bore through, we then attach another device called a back reamer, and we pull that back from uh, a, a pilot to 12 inches. We pull it back to 24 inches, and eventually we open up that borehole to 36 inches, at which point we can then slide a 36-inch HDPE sleeve. So basically think of like high-pressure natural gas pipe uh, that we slide under the river. And then we can install uh, roughly 32-inch-and-a-half HDPE conduits. And through that, you start pulling your actual you know, multi-thousand count uh, fiber cables. So system design capacity of 235,000 fibers. Uh, it's taking three different river crossings, two across the Potomac and one across a little river called the Monocacy. And that will extend the uh, Loudoun County internet ecosystem with extreme scale 
to 30 miles north of Frederick County, Maryland. One, I mean, that is incredibly fascinating. But number two is I can't imagine all of the permits that I needed to go through to be able to uh, to uh, go under a river like that. Um, I mean, unless it wasn't, a, I mean, I guess you, you might know, I mean, you would definitely know uh, more than me, but uh, what was that all like? A, how long did it take for them to get that sort of permission to be able to do that? Or order of years is a reasonable approximation for getting this type of project done. Yeah, uh, I could yeah. imagine. There is a there is a ton of permitting that goes into that, <laughs> right? I mean, one of the, and one of the things that I appreciate about the quantum team is, you know, they're doing it, they're doing it right, and they're doing it in environmentally friendly ways too. So mm -hmm. I think that it's you know there's a real win for um, the industry as a whole there, and and they're going to set an example and a high bar for people that come behind them. Excellent. And so is that, that, that specific area is the only uh, project that they're, they're working on right now? Or is it as much as you can? 20, it's 2,200 acres. We're kind of busy, my friend. I know. Specifically, the... Well, so maybe, and maybe that's a point of confusion for me. Um, is, uh, so is Quantum Loophole mainly focused on developing everything? Or, was it, or is their strength being able to get the fiber to where it needs to be? Yeah, so, so quantum really provides a couple different things, right? Like we don't actually provide data centers, but we provide all the things that a data center needs, right? So Got we it. provide land, we provide electricity, we provide fiber connectivity, we provide water, and we provide sewage. And then we provide all the public facilities, roads, bridges, uh, traffic studies, all the things that you need to actually have a massive scale data center campus exist. Right. Because we, we need these things to like fit into our communities. Right. And it's not just like plop it in and you're done. It has to be very, very well planned as to how it fits into the geography around it. Yeah. And, and that makes a lot more sense why <laughs> For, uh, the, the disconnect of, again, uh, was it was it just the fiber? But knowing that they're handling so many of these other things. Yeah, I, I, I get that, that that single project is, you know, I'm guessing what a decade plus effort. Um, Josh and his, Josh and his team have been very very busy, and they they continue to be very busy. But they're they're stellar people. They got some great excellent. stuff going on. Excellent, excellent. Well, Tom, uh, you know, thanks for taking the time to be on our our podcast. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, for anyone who uh, who wants to to learn more or connect with you, uh, what's the best way for for people to find you on the internet? Uh, so let's see. LinkedIn is probably my my favorite. Uh, so just search for Thomas Daly on LinkedIn. Uh, hit up Big Network on Twitter uh, at the handle Get Big Network, uh, or you know, pop onto our website and send us a note, BigNetwork.com. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you again, Tom. It was it was it was great. Oh, thank you for having me, Jake. It was great to talk to you and talk to your audience. For anyone uh, who's interested in finding more of our podcasts, uh, all these podcasts uh, are hosted on Cycle.io, our website. Um, you can also find them on YouTube. You can find them on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, and I believe Google Podcasts as well. Um, we've had uh, about a four-month window where we've, we had recently paused on podcasts, but uh, starting with this podcast, the goal is to ramp, ramp uh, podcasts back up and, and, and continue them monthly. So... Uh, thanks for, for, for listening and uh, check us out uh, on Cycle.io and, and there you go.